We're back in Empires of the Future, and we're in book four of Mere Christianity, the home stretch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm glad. I'm glad to be in book four. I'm glad. I make it sound like I'm ready to be done with the book. That's not what I meant to say. No, I'm, I'm excited about this chapter, though. Um, a very good chapter, and, and uh, very excited to talk about it. Yeah. It's a little different today. Neither of us have eaten yet, so if our temperament is a little, uh, a little coarser than usual... I, it's, I That's haven't eaten. why you haven't eaten, right? No, I haven't eaten. Yeah, I mean, I had a cinnamon roll downstairs. Uh, that was probably your in, one of your interns' cinnamon rolls. Sorry about that, <laughs> uh, Savannah. If that was your intern, or if that was your cinnamon roll, but anyway. And so um, it'll be different today, but we're talking about things like the difference between making and begetting. Mm-hmm. Talking about personality and all that's involved in that. And if we uh, push ourselves and get really far, we'll even get to time and beyond time. So complicated stuff, but stuff that we deal with every day. Yeah, definitely. A part of why I like this um, section so much, this, uh, this book of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, is the fact that as he starts it out, you know, he kind of makes the point like, okay, we're moving now into theology. And he addresses something that he's heard from people of like, Hey, why are you wasting your time or, you know, why are you putting things like that in the book? The book should be practical and what people need is practical insight, knowledge, things like that, not theology. And thankfully he ignores their complaints and goes ahead and puts in there uh, sections about, um, about or sections that are specifically theological, right. which I'm really glad that he does because as he makes the point, like while these are very difficult topics, many of them, they're, they're not simple, and he never claims that they are. They are indeed in, in immensely practical. They're very, very practical in, in what they mean for us, the reality of who God is and understanding that well. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that he has kind of like a good um, theological section in here for us to dive into. Right, and this is useful I think for every single one of us, and I don't use that lightly, um, but by every one of us, I think people at every level, kind of spiritually, and Christians of every level, one of the most useful things that I heard in the seminary that is just daily life kind of thing, especially life in the church, is that right thinking is for right doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, The way they said it is orthodoxy is for orthopraxy that the purpose of learning how things really are is so that when you do things then you can do them right and i say that because they're they're uh, we're dealing with such complicated things all the time in the church god is as big an idea as you'll ever run into and you can get lost in the idea but the purpose is then do what the bible says do what you see jesus doing and we can get so caught up. Our minds are <laughs> not very big. And we can get so caught up in these big ideas that you go, well, I just need to think more about these big ideas. And you do, but for the purpose always of doing it, not just sitting and thinking. Right. And, and a kind of the, another angle to that and to this discussion about theology and practice and things like that is what that also means is that, uh, you, and I've heard many people say like, well, you know, I don't care that much about theology. I just care about the practical, about these things, right living, that kind of stuff. Yep. Um, but what that also means when you think about how orthodoxy influences orthopraxy uh, is it also means that it does have an influence, that what we believe about God and what we know about God does have an impact on how we live uh, and how we live in obedience to God and in relationship to God. Just the, in the same way, you can't live in, in good relationship with your husband or your wife if you don't know that person well. Right. It's, it's impossible. You can you know claim to and want to, desire to, even have certain emotional feelings towards that person, but the relationship is always going to be lacking if there's a lacking of knowledge and intimacy with that person. Mm-hmm. And what we're arguing for here at C.S. Lewis is, is that theology is a means for us to gain that knowledge and therefore foster that intimacy with the God that we that we love and that we that we worship, and so it's right. a good thing, right? And I mean, we're already in uh, one of the main points he makes in chapter one called making and begetting. He says, okay, if you think of God and you make a comparison, that if God is like the ocean, well, theology is like a map. Mm-hmm. The map is not the ocean, but the map is really useful to know how to navigate the ocean. And also, for anybody who says, well, I, 
I don't, I don't know how much use I have for theology. I've felt God. I've sensed God. But he's a great mystery. Yes, he is, as is the ocean. But if you want to survive on the ocean, the map is really important. That's right. And, and that's just such an important point to make. Uh, because whatever your giftedness, like it, I think people's giftedness kind of plays into this. Some people are more interested in theology. I mean, if they're a teacher uh, or, you know, if they have the spiritual gifts of knowledge and these sort of things. And like you're talking about, some people go, well, I'm, I'm less interested in theology. I think a lot of times what they're saying is I get a lot of theology from other people. Mm-hmm. My interest is doing. Well, this is exactly what the Bible is after when the Apostle Paul says, hey, different parts of the body need each other. Yeah. Whatever it is that you're good at, just recognize you're a part of the team and rely on each other, but never make these statements. To me, the, the point is never make these statements. I mean, this is what, what he's after when he says, hey, don't, the foot shouldn't say to the hand, I don't need you. Know your part, yeah. but appreciate other people's parts. Begin to learn other people's parts because it does all fit together, you know? Yeah, that's right. And it, it's a funny, I don't know, we, we hear the word theology or even the word theologian, yeah. and it sounds so oftentimes so far above us. Mm-hmm. You know, we think of these people who write all these books and, and dissertations and what have you. That's what we think of when we think of people studying theology or being theologians. But, you know, R.C. Sproul, he wrote the book, Everyone's a Theologian. Right, uh, right. The argument he's making in the book is that if you're a Christian, then you're called to practice theology. Because right. at a basic level, what the word theology means, as he points out, uh, C.S. Lewis points out in the book, uh, means the science of God or the study of God. Yep. So, like, if you make any claim about God, so someone who says, I don't really care about theology, I care about practical living, about loving God and, you know, being in communion with Him or whatever. Well, let's start with this. Well, how do you know that... Uh, that God can be loved right? or that God loves you. How do you know that? What, what makes you think that you can be in communion with God? Well, their answer is, is necessarily all that is true, but it's necessarily going to come back to a theological statement. Well, I know that God, you know, is able to be communed with because he calls us to commune with him in his word. Okay. Well, guess what you've just done there, right? You've begun engaging in theology. And so, it's sometimes helpful to set the record straight on what we mean when we talk about practicing theology. We don't mean, you know, being well-versed in every, you know, every writing of the Reformation or, or all these different things. What we mean is the desire to know God truly and rightly as he is. And yeah, his analogy of using the map and the ocean was really good. I mean, think about, think about that. And, and, you know, he uses a, a, the ocean, but you could even think of something like if you're going to go, hiking in the mountains. I love hiking. I love getting out in the, um, in the wilderness and going, hiking up to some destination, whether it be a waterfall or, you know, great scenic view, whatever. But that, that waterfall, that thing is the real thing. And the map is a, a man-made thing. It is not the real thing, Right. but, and that's oftentimes what people will will talk about. They're like, well, I'd rather just experience God rather than get, you know, set my attention towards this non-real thing, non-real experience of theology. And in a sense, that's true, but the thing is you can never get to that, that waterfall without that map. Right. While the map is man-made, it's made by those who have the knowledge, who have been there, who have experience, and it's the means by which we are able to get to that waterfall. Now, once we get to the waterfall, we can enjoy the real thing of the right. waterfall, but the map is, is crucial in helping us get there. Right, and it, this is a great place to say— in all theology, you should stick very close to the Bible. And if you, the pastor you're sitting under doesn't preach from the Bible in a way where you can hear what he's saying, and you look at the Bible and you go, I see generally how it gets there. Uh, look, some stuff is harder to get there, but you should, you should sit under preaching where you are encouraged to read the Bible for yourself and you are continually pointed to the Bible because good theology sticks close to the Bible. Yeah. Uh, and and that's, that's how this whole thing is supposed to work as far as discipleship in the church. Uh, so then, let me ask you then, Denton, uh, making and begetting, what's the difference? Uh, so it is an, an important distinction, and I'm going to kind of use some of the same analogies that he uses in the book, but um, begetting involves... Um, 
something more like becoming the father of, mm-hmm. uh, as he kind of points out. But it, when something is begotten, it is the same or an extremely similar substance at the very least, but it's of, of the same substance as what begets it. Of the same kind, yeah. Of the same kind, of the same substance. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so it can be said, truly and rightly, that man begets man, dogs beget dogs, right. beavers beget beavers, X, Y, Z. Um, but what cannot be said is that man makes or creates man. Uh, so when, when men engage to create something, um, whether we use stone, wood, whatever materials we have, we can only create something that is a um, representation of or, okay. or you know, image bearer-ish of man. When I say image bearer, I mean like a sculpture. Like mm-hmm. it, it looks like yeah. man. But that is never a man. Uh, and so when someone creates or, or makes, and that the word creates, um, then that means that they have created something that is other than them. But to be begotten is to be of the same kind as what was before. So where this comes into play, where this matters in theology, is that we recognize that Christ is the, as the scriptures say, the only begotten Son of God. Right. And God himself says, says, I have begotten you, speaking of Christ. It's important to recognize that distinction because one thing that we do not claim and do not see the scriptures teaching and that is false and, and in fact is something that um, is a part of many cults and false religions is that Jesus Christ was created or right. made rather than begotten, right. which means he is not God. That's what's being denied here in the, in the distinction between begotten and created is that Christ was begotten of God. Right which means that he is God. And that's an important, important distinction, important for all sorts of aspects of theology, really as a, as a building block of theology, the the deity of Christ, the fact that he is one with the father, that he is God without that Christianity is lost. Right. It's, it's a bust. Right. And so each of these chapters in book four are an answer to a question that if you have, uh, I'll say it like this, I'll say attempted Christianity, um, by that I mean you said yes to Jesus, but then also you made an effort at it. <laughs> uh, you will begin to ask some questions as you hear the Bible talked about, as you read the Bible, and I can remember specifically having this question. Well, if I'm already a son of God now, and Jesus is a son of God, one, what's the difference? And if I'm already a son of God, why be discipled? Why grow? Um, and it's also an answer, I mean, what you were pointing to, to the most common verse, to, to a question I think if you think about it all, you'll have about the most common verse uh, quoted in the Bible, which is, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Mm-hmm. It is a shame that cr- plenty of current translations are dropping begotten mm-hmm. because that word, one, it's there in the original language, um, and you cannot simplify, even for people's understanding, you just can't simplify that verse and really be helpful um, because Jesus is the only begotten son. Mm -hmm. Yes, thankfully, others of us are sons and daughters of God, but Jesus will always have that special place that he is of the same kind as God, but we were made from dirt, <laughs> right? <laughs> created like exactly what you were saying, just like a man might make a anything from a mud pie to Michelangelo's David. <laughs> That's right. We are created, which is a question I had a lot as a young Christian. What is what? What am I made of? What does it mean that I was made in God's image? Which we talk about a lot in the church, um, and this is a, a real, really important. Uh, milestone on that discussion. Uh, the big difference between Jesus and us is that Jesus is the only begotten Son. We were created. I would sit there in church and go, why is it such a big deal that I get to be a son of God? They make a big deal. They seem yeah. to make a big deal. Some people don't seem to make a big deal. Well, if you were made, you know, like a, like something out of uh Stone, we don't adopt, you know, uh, our favorite landscaping rock as our son. 
Right. But us, human beings made out of dirt, it's not just that God didn't scrap us after we sinned. He calls all of us to repentance, and those of us who come to him, he says, now I will make you my sons and daughters, which is shocking. It ought to be shocking. But it's often not shocking. But it's not shocking precisely because we don't think carefully enough and we don't desire enough to have good theology. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and this is such a serious issue that uh, the, the Nicene Creed, one of, um, one of several, but one of the most important Christian creeds that's risen out of history, uh, with, the, with the intention and um, express purpose of being as clear as possible in these statements about who God is and what we believe as Christians, mm-hmm. they make this statement about, about Jesus. Uh, so it starts out, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of, of all things visible and invisible. And then it says, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, mm-hmm. light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Right. They make the, the, the point to state it not just once, but twice, that he has begotten and then begotten not made to clarify this distinction between who Jesus is and who we are. We were made by God. We were created, uh, but Jesus Christ was begotten, not made. Right. He is begotten, not made. And so um, that's an important distinction. And like you say, it, it carries a great weight and significance to think that we might be adopted as sons and that, uh, and that Christ would, would consider us to be brothers uh, is a it's kind of mind blowing, right? There, there are so many scriptures that talk about Jesus, his relationship with the Father, Jesus, and his relationship with us that will begin to make sense when you just meditate on this issue. We think about it a little bit about okay, why is this so important? This is why the scriptures say he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Mm-hmm. You go, well, why would he be? Well, this is why he would be. Yeah. You're not calling, I mean, not only you're not calling your landscaping rocks your brothers, you're not even calling your dog your brother. And this is why Christians are speaking against, even in our day, calling your dog your child. Mm -hmm. I don't think you have to have any sort of malicious intent or even to talk down to someone when you're saying that's just, it's just not true. And it doesn't help you to act like it is true. What right. it'll do is put you in a real bad spot if you pick up a $3,000 veterinary bill. <laughs> if you've already told yourself this is your child, um, you'll be, let's just say, emotionally conflicted in that moment. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, yeah, dogs, I'm a, I'm a dog person. You are. You're I'm much more, and I, and I had dogs growing up, but you're much more of a dog person than me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love dogs. Um, and I I would be one of the first to say, like, it is easy to to gain an emotional attachment to a dog, yep. regardless of whether or not you consider that dog your child. Like the dog has a place in your home and and your 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 is a part of your family lifestyle and things like that. It has a role, but its role is that of pet. You know, dog right. serves a purpose and a utility, but not the role of child. And while I think that is a point to be made, like, um, hey, you could sink your savings into. <laughs> into this dog if you're looking at it as a child. And that is that is one thing to be considered. But I think even even more importantly than that, I think it it blurs the the uniqueness of how God has created us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, it, it blurs the lines of, between God's creation. Dogs are great, uh, but dogs are not created in the image of God. Dogs are not people and have the same value as people. Uh, and I think it's unhelpful all around to treat them like they are. And you know, I think some people would say, well, you're just nitpicking. Like, you know, people say that, but they don't really, you know, think mm-hmm. that the dog is their kid. It's like, yeah, you're saying that, but what are we seeing now is more and more and more and people are choosing to have pets, dogs, rather than to have kids. Yeah. And you're, we are literally hearing arguments about why it's better to have dogs than kids, mm-hmm. which is, is so disgusting. It's grotesque. Mm-hmm. The idea that we would compare having a child to having a dog yeah. uh, and which one's better. I, it, that really does start to kind of make me angry and frustrate me. Um, and of all the things that uh, that Pope Francis has ever said or done, one of the best things he's ever said, uh, and I'm not a fan of, of 
the papacy. Well, one of the best things that Pope Francis has ever said was that people need to stop having pets and have kids. <laughs> you know, he kind of made an argument uh, a while back yep. in favor of that. But yeah, I, I think I'm on a soapbox now, but that is my soapbox. Like, hey, dogs are great, uh, but dogs are not kids and it's a bad thing to view them as such. Uh, and so for all of you people who have dogs out there, my kids are one billion times better than your dogs well, and more valuable and more important. Well, and, and what is uh, underlying this is, look, a dog's nature is different from a human being's nature. And if you don't keep that in mind, it won't be good for your dog either to treat it <laughs> like it's not a dog. Um, and, uh, and so we can tie it up by saying that I remember when I, I had my, uh, my dog Sly growing up, uh, my friend Dan would be over and he just, if he said this once, he said it 50 times, you know, Sly, you're a good dog. You're still a dog. <laughs> <laughs> That's the right answer. That's the right answer. Right. You're a good dog. Still a dog. Um, and so we can leave that there, but to, to tie up this kind of making and begetting and the difference, I, I really appreciate this section, um, where, C.S. Lewis points to, he says, there are always things about this. We're all in stages of kind of relating to this and understanding this. And at one point he says, the Bible teaches that Jesus is God's son, whatever that means, and that we can become sons by believing in him, whatever that means, and that his death saved us from our sins, whatever that means. And in this section, I found so helpful uh, where, because we all talk about that, and we should, and we all are trying to always understand more about that, and we should, but we never completely understand all that's involved in each of those stages. So we should always be grabbing what we can and still leaving the door open to go, I'm still going to keep learning more about this. Yeah. And that's what it feels like to walk with God in the church, to learn more about who he is, and, and to try your best prayerfully to have good theology, but then to have good practice right? And, and knowing you'll fail and knowing you get to wake up every morning and go, I keep reading God that you are not angry at me for failing yesterday, that you're mm-hmm. willing to forgive me today Amen. and that I can start again. Thank you. I'll go do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's such a great, great section. And in that, in that part, what he's kind of getting at, he's talking about the, the Christian, this is the Christian answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might, you know, especially for people who are new to the faith or new to even what Christianity is, you, you're not going to probably understand what a Christian means when they say that Christ is the Son of God. And that's why he says whatever that means. Uh, or that uh, those who give him their confidence can also become sons of God. Or uh, that his death saved us from our sins. A lot of those things, when you're first in- introduced to Christianity, might not make a ton of sense. But they're all stemming from and, and, and a product of the Christian answer to some of these some of these questions and what it means that Christ is begotten, not made, because um, this is all out of the same, the same chapter, uh, is that all of the, the things that Jesus has come to this earth to do are unique mm-hmm. and different from everything else. You know, G- a lot of people want to think of Jesus as a great moral teacher, and he's talked about that earlier in the book. Um, but the thing is, as he points out, there have been a whole host of great moral teachers whose advice would be well followed and the world would be a better place if we would all just follow their advice. Um, so why should it be of any significance that Christ has come as another moral teacher giving more advice? And that's a valid question. If you just accept that Christ was a moral teacher who came and gave good advice. The point is he's much more than that, right? He came as the only begotten son of God, begotten, not made. And so when he comes, he comes to do more than just give good advice, though his advice is good and should be followed, uh, he came not only to give that good advice, uh, but also to provide a means for us to have, as we've already talked about, to be united with him, to have union with him, and uh, and to be restored into right relationship with God. And we're restored into that right relationship in which we're able, excuse me, to hear his right advice and to follow it more closely. Um, but knowing that we are united to God and restored in that relationship, not because of our obedience to his good moral advice, right. um, but because of his atoning death and work. Yeah, um, by grace, by grace. Yeah, by grace. That's right. And so we're, we're, we'll get into all that later. But um, yeah, really, really 
important to acknowledge and recognize the, the begottenness of, of Christ. Right, which leads to, there's kind of one other pair of concepts in this chapter that are really important, and that is, um, C.S. Lewis uses these two words. We talk about life, and, and life in the sense of uh, vibrancy and vitality. Um, and he says, look, uh, we all know, and, and in our day especially, we talk a lot about what you could call biological life. And we, oh, calories and, and how much, you know, how did you eat? Oh, I can't run. It, you know, it wears me out. And, well, I can't lift weights. That, you know, it's too hard for me. And we talk so much about this. And we are tempted to go, oh, that's, that physical energy is all there is. That's what we're tempted to. And he says, but there is such a thing as spiritual vitality. And he summarizes that by using the word zoe. And, and he says that spiritual vitality, though, when you say, through the power of the Holy Spirit, no to your sins and yes to Jesus, the Bible says, now you are saying yes to mercy and grace, and God then puts in you spiritual life. Mm-hmm. And what's so exciting about this is, first of all, if you've never said that, that decision to, to just open yourself and say, to God, I, I don't understand all this, but I need life from you, and I don't have it in me. Mm-hmm. That is such a turning point. But to say no to our sins and yes to Jesus, to trust in his death, burial, and resurrection, means then God is acting on you to give you a totally new kind of life. And that spiritual life, for, for all who heard everything we've been talking about in the last few minutes, going, oh, I could never understand this. I, I don't know how I could ever, I, could, I couldn't do, I get practice, do right practices. I don't have the guts to do that or the uh, understanding, whatever you're thinking. Listen. The first thing you've got to do is say no to your sins and yes to God. Reach out and, and just ask for help. And then he begins to work. And that newness, that new spiritual life, that Zoe, game changer, changes everything because you are not expected by God to do all this yourself. He will begin to work through you, but we've got to stop thinking one-dimensionally in terms of just material and just... Well, I'll put, pick myself up by my own bootstraps. I'll, 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 I'll make this happen through all these means that I've already learned in my life. It's not, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work. That's right. And so th- that's just a, a huge uh, distinction that is made here, that God has spiritual life in him. Yeah. And it, it ties to some of the chapters we've already talked about, that look, maybe you have tried to do this yourself. Be honest about how you did with that. Um, because reaching out to him and relying on his strength is what changes all that. And um, so this stuff has been pretty complicated, but truth is often complicated. Right. Uh, He he points to that in this chapter. That's going to be important for this next chapter. Um, It is no use saying, well, I wish physics were easier. Well, it isn't. It's not. <laughs> it's and, Right. And, and, and so he says that himself uh, about these different disciplines. Look, what you're actually getting is knowledge of God and how he really made the world. This is not playthings. He's bringing you into his real life, and he's bringing to you in <clears throat> excuse me, to the truth about the way this world really operates. Mm-hmm. It's going to be complicated. And we have come to understand and expect. Please don't ask for calculus to not be complicated. That's right. It, it's, it, it's complicated, but this, is, this set of disciplines to, to know reality is worthwhile. So go after it. Yep. Yeah, I'll revert back to the, his first paragraph. He has this uh, a couple lines in here. He says, theology means the science of God. And I think any man who wants to think about God at all would like to have the clearest and most accurate ideas about him, which are available. You are not children. So why should you be treated like children? Um, that's you know kind of kind of where we get to this. These things are are not necessarily easy to understand, uh, but they are good to understand yeah. uh, and and useful for us. And we've already I think even already we've seen some of the practical implications of the theology that he's laying out here. Um, and we're going to see even more as we get into uh, I think the next section, right? Yep. Um, as we get into the the three personal God is what the the name of the next section is and. And this deals with, as you might guess, um, it deals with the Trinity, the fact that God is triune. Um, but f- as you see from the 
other portion of the of the name, the three personal God, uh, that he is God create not excuse me that he is God in three persons. He exists in three persons, um, three persons, one God, um, but also that that has impact on us and that we, in a very personal and real sense, um, benefit from this triune God and the fact that he is triune. And he kind of lays it out a little bit, um, the fact that God is three personal. Um, uh, but sorry, I'm kind of jumping ahead here because this is a little bit later, but um, you want to get started with, I think you've got a quote from this one that you wanted to talk about. Um. Let me read this one. Yeah. He says uh, early on in the chapter, quote, the human level is a simple and rather empty level. On the human level, one person is one being, and any two persons are two separate beings, just as in two dimensions, say on a flat sheet of paper, one square is one figure, and any two squares are two separate figures. On the divine level, you can still find personalities, but up there, you find them combined in new ways which we, who do not live on that level, cannot imagine. In God's dimension, so to speak, you find a being who is three persons while remaining one being, just as a cube is six squares while remaining one cube. But we can get a sort of faint notion of it. And when we do, we are then, for the first time in our lives, getting some positive idea, however faint, of something super personal, something more than a person. It is something we could never have guessed. And yet, once we have been told, one almost feels one ought to have been able to guess it because it fits in so well with all the things we know already, end quote. Now, this reminds me of how people in the church will say, you know, uh, you'll hear it every now and then. Honestly, I haven't heard it in a while, but I still know it's out there for sure. Well, the Trinity's not even in the Bible. Mm-hmm. The word, I'll give it to you, not in there. Right. The thing that I say about that is, typically what somebody needs to be told about that is, give it time. <laughs> yeah. Because it, it is uh, complicated theology. Right. But when you begin to ask questions, like ones we've already talked about, well, who is Jesus? Well, if you want to know, you're going to immediately uh, get to, okay, wow, you all say Jesus is God. But isn't God the Father also God? Yes. Okay. You know, um, and, and so I find it useful to start and to say, we don't, we live at the level on our day-to-day lives that we don't even deal with healthy human beings. We think it's quote-unquote normal for somebody to put a smile on their face and meanwhile inside of their heart have all kinds of malice toward us or be angry or not tell us what they feel. And until you've asked questions like, what would a healthy human being be like? What were we made to be? Okay, beyond that, what would higher beings be like? Mm-hmm. The, the Trinity question is going to come down that line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't necessarily chase that train of thought kind of every week in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, we, we I, I would say, because we're more interested in doing that. Right. Correcting actions, correcting uh, thinking. Um, and so that's the, the train that we're on, which goes where you were going. Right. Right, and the, that's the reason I realized I was kind of jumping way ahead, but uh, when he talks about a man who's praying, and this is kind of what you see, uh, that an ordinary, simple Christian kneels down to pray, uh, and here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says he's trying to get in touch with God, but if he is a Christian, uh, he knows that what is prompting him to pray is also God. God, so to speak, is inside him. But he also knows that all his real knowledge of God comes through Christ, the man who is God. What Christ is standing beside, excuse me, that Christ is standing beside him, helping him to pray, praying for him. You see what is happening. God is the thing to which he is praying, the goal to which he is trying to reach. God is also the thing inside him, which is pushing him on, the motive power. God is also the road or bridge along which he is being pushed to that goal. So that that the whole threefold life of the three personal being is actually going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. He just took the concept of the Trinity and brought it into your bedroom as you kneel down to pray. Right. Which is, you know, part of the, the beauty of, of the mind of C.S. Lewis, how he's able to do these kinds of things. But it is immensely personal to recognize the right. trying nature of God. 
even, and I think especially to think about redemption mm-hmm. and how redemption is accomplished in that all three persons of the Trinity of right. the Godhead are involved in a unique way in redemption that God foreordained and, and planned the, his work of redemption. Christ came God the father. And, yes. And, what did I say? You say God, 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 the father. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and Christ, God, the son, uh, accomplished this work. He came, lived a perfectly righteous life, obeyed the law perfectly, and then died the death on the cross that we deserve, imputing his righteousness to us while taking our sin upon himself. Uh, and then this redemptive work that has been planned by God the Father, accomplished by uh, God the Son, has now been applied to us by God the Holy Spirit. The and one is being applied, yeah, day to day, as we go. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, it is It is being... Uh, finalized, applied to us, that now the Holy Spirit is for us the seal or the guarantee of our redemption, of our salvation that has been worked in God the Father, accomplished through Christ the Son, God okay. the Son, uh, and now being applied to us by the Holy Spirit. It, I mean, that is, if, and this is saturated all throughout Scripture. This is not something that we just like, right. hey, it'd be cool if God was in three persons. Uh, let's try and find a way to make that happen. No, as as from the beginning of of church history, as the church was reading the scriptures uh, and knowing who God was and and knowing what Christ had declared even to his disciples, it becomes evident that, okay, well, Jesus is definitely, absolutely God, uh, along with God the Father, uh, but this one whom he has sent is very clearly, absolutely God, uh, God the Holy Spirit it becomes clear that though the Bible doesn't say the word Trinity, God clearly lays out in his word uh, this reality that he is a triune God. Right. And it has great implications for us today. Right. And I mean, this is one of those things that this is all for our comfort, encouragement, uh, that God is doing what he said he would do in us. Not only has God done what he said in the world out there inside of your own heart, he is working, and I often hear in the church, uh, and, and I think it's true in at least the churches that um, that I have been familiar with, that, uh, and I would even say denomination by denomination, certain members of the Trinity are more emphasized. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, in, in my experience in Baptist churches, the Holy Spirit is underemphasized, um, because of, or in in part because of, the emphasis on Jesus and God the Father. Um, And so what is needed then is we should be looking to the Scriptures and finding out, okay, what is God doing? How how is this happening in my heart? And, And that's why we ought to be about this project of understanding what is what is God doing in my daily life and how can I encourage other believers as we are together um, and and like you said this um, this is a summary uh, the, the word mm-hmm. Trinity yeah. try three unity All, it is a summary of a lot of sections of the Bible and the church has had this witness from the time of the uh, Apostles' Creed is the creedal, the first time we've had it put uh, in a in a creed that we still kind of hold to today, uh, but the position of the church from the Apostles has been, well, this is how we understand God working, uh, and, and, and the best summary of how, what we can know of God's being. Right. Uh, and, and so, hugely important, just from a standpoint of, Look, you're not on solid ground if at any point you're looking at the Bible going, you know, um, I don't know if Jesus is God. Mm-hmm. Well, keep reading. Right. Uh, or read it again. <laughs> right. I mean, they're just not evidence. That is not a position that holds up. What's interesting in our day, there is this issue where people seem uh, more comfortable thinking of God either as a force or a principle or a lot of, we talk about a lot of other sort of lower ideas about God. Uh, they used to talk about the cosmic cop all the time that God's, God's always watching to see if anybody's having fun and 
ready to shut him down. Yeah, ready just, to smite him. Just like police officer on the corner. So there's a lot of wrong ideas right. about God. And if you don't get a hold of the good ideas, you'll attach yourself to a bad idea. Right. Um, the bold claim that C.S. Lewis makes here is Christianity is the only religion that offers God as super personal. Yeah. He is one being. He is three persons mm-hmm. that, that offers God and says, God is not just personal, meaning wanting to relate to you. God relates within himself. Mm-hmm. He is not lonely. Mm-hmm. His, his relationship is complete in himself. Mm-hmm. We are beings who need other people, mm-hmm. and we were made to be that way. Yeah. Before the fall, it is not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. So we can expect for all eternity to enjoy being with each other because we were made for that. And we should know you should expect relationship today, that you were made for a relationship with God and with other people and to find yourself in that. That is also because you are a personal being made in the image of the super personal being, God. This This is all about finding the truth about who you are, who you were made to be, what your fundamental nature is. Um, and I'll, again, like you're, you're, you were saying, all this sounds so high, and cal- but this is our daily lives, that we, we will be working and doing things, and then we'll go, wow, somehow I'm run down, empty, lonely. And then you can look around and go, have I had broken relationships? Have I had more strife in my close relationships? Okay, that's, that's not going to work. That's not, that's not going to keep you in a healthy state of mind. And if you uh, are not walking with God, well, then you're going to run down. Mm-hmm. That's just how that is. Yeah. I think additionally, the, the higher and more clear your view of God is and the picture of God that you have, the more true that is, the more you're going to, A, stand in awe of Him, the more you're going to, B, realize kind of your estate and, and who you are in, in kind of the, the cosmos, right? Um, and C, for Christians, you're going to realize and be all the more amazed with uh, what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Um, you know, the fact that God is triune, and, and as you mentioned before, he, God is, is, is never lonely. You know, he is, um, I don't know, I call it intrapersonal. Uh, I don't know if that's the right word for that, but the fact that God has existed as as triune, as uh, three persons, one God, perfect relationship with one another, uh, God has never been lonely. God did not create us as human beings because He was like right. lonely or bored or you know needed someone to give Him affection or to worship Him. That that's nonsense. God didn't create us because He needed our worship. There was anything lacking in Him, so He created us. Which that begs the question, well, then why did God create us? And the answer is kind of complicated depending on how you want to look at it, but also quite simple in, in the answer of God created us for his own glory. That's why he created us. That's why we say the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And these kinds of, of things begin to come with all kinds of other good and right implications for us. One being, when you think about God in this way, that he is so high, that he is so... Uh, amazing so in a sense transcendent um but at the same time is personal and loves us and cares for us as individuals and is willing to adopt us as sons it speaks to the glory of god's condescension of god condescending to our level c.s lewis talks about the, the the way in which and what's necessary to relate to other people uh, he says suppose you want to get to know a human person if he is determined not to let you then you will not get to know him. You have to win his confidence. In this case, the initiative is equally divided. It takes two to make a friendship. Okay, so the point he's making, if you're going to get to know another human being, you can do everything that you need to do, but if that other person isn't willing to have a relationship with you, then it's just not going to happen. Right. right. So take that to the next level up. And, th- and this is something that J.I. Packer does in his book, Knowing God. And I think chapter three, it's on knowing God and being known by God. It's another thing entirely to seek to make the initiative and and build a relationship with someone like, say, the president of the United States. It would be a—I mean, you could know about the president. 
you could know aspects of him and things like that. But unless the president of the United States makes up his mind that he is going to allow a relationship to be grown between you, that he's going to um, let you in on on kind of who he is and 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 personal kind of um, things about himself, open up to you in that way. Even that is, in a sense, a condescension if you think about the president or yeah. perhaps a monarchy being able to have a relationship with them. It, It'd be quite an honor, though, right? right, for that person to allow you to have a relationship with them. How much more so when you take it to the level of God, the right. creator of the universe, that we can have a relationship with him, that we can know him and be known by him is all to the due to the fact that he has made himself known to us, yep. that he has condescended in that way. And whatever honor it would be to have a personal relationship with the president of the United States or the queen or king of England or whatever, it is infinitely more amazing mm-hmm. that the God of the universe would allow us to have a relationship with him and would bring us into his presence, bring us into relationship with him. It's kind of a, it's an amazing reality given yeah. who he is. And we think about how complicated the Trinity is, how transcendent God is. Uh, and yet this transcendent triune God loves us. And has chosen to to bring us into relationship with him. Uh, it's an amazing thing, right? Yeah. Um, so the the last kind of idea in this chapter that I think is really important. He says the instrument through which you see God is your whole self. The soul, in one way of thinking, is all of you together. Some of us think more in, in sort of sections, but mm-hmm. your whole self is so important because knowing God will take your whole self. It's part of why if you kind of go, well, I'm going to test God out, I'll think about some of these things. Well, it's not going to get you too far. Um, you're going to have to put your whole self into this. Uh, theology is a kind of experimental science where God must reveal himself. He says that. And then we've been talking about theology in that way because there's good theology and bad theology. Uh, if, if you have bad theology, well, you're relating to God. You might just literally fail because you're just not even thinking right. Uh, so then, God can show himself as he really is only to real men. And that means not simply to men who are individually good, but to men who are united together in a body, loving one another, helping one another, showing him to one another. And that was a quote. I should have quoted that, but uh, think about that again. God can show himself as he really is only to real men. Mm-hmm. And that means not simply to men who are individually good, but to men who are united together in a body, loving one another, helping one another, showing him to one another. This ties in a lot of things we've talked about today. We were made for relationship with God and each other. Mm-hmm. We... In our heart of hearts, we know that. Yes, we all have broken relationships, damaged relationships, and everywhere in between. uh, And then, hopefully, good relationships and everywhere in between. Um, If God is going to show himself to us as we seek him with our whole self, the best way for us to do that is in a group of people committed to the same cause, not only the best way, the only way for us to do that is in a group of people committed to the same cause, which is knowing God as he has revealed himself. And that sounds an awful lot like a church to me. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I 100% agree with you. Um, the, he makes the, the case that the best way to know God uh, is in the context of the local church, of his people. And, and I'm using the word local church, the church, right? But there's no way to be connected to the church apart from the local church. Yep. That's kind of a, a little catch-22, kind of a funny thing um, that everyone who is a Christian will will claim union with the church universal, right? Um, but there's no way to actually and practically do that if you're disconnected from any local church. Yep. Um, but if the, you want to know about the church universal, I would very much encourage you to get to know yeah. the church militant or the church on... The corner where you are part of it. That's right. That's right. And, and we have uh, plenty here in town that we'd be happy to to recommend to you if you are uh, in Evansville, Indiana. I guess this is a international podcast. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> that seems kind of kind of bold, but uh, maybe it is. Um, yeah, 
the the point he, that he he's laying out here is that this is the way to to know God and to um, to experience Him. As you said, it's kind of an experimental science. This is, I think, in essence, if I might be so bold, is the not just reading the map, but at some point putting the map down once you have arrived at that de- destination and experiencing right. the beauty of that of that thing. You know, this is what what all the theology brings us to is to experience God. And the way to do that is in the context of the local church. And, mm-hmm. and as you read God's words, you read the New Testament and you read how God has saved for himself a people and is creating, is building up for himself the household of God, uh, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Um, he is building for himself a people, a church. And so if you want to be one who knows God and experiences God, it means you need to be a part of the church, of that of that great structure that he is building, the the temple, if you will. Yeah. Um, and that's the way to do it. Yeah, the living temple. God has been after a people throughout history. That's what you see from the Old Testament to Revelation. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the beginning of the Old Testament, he's after a people. And we had no idea what it would take for him to get a people. Uh, Adam and Eve obviously didn't. They sinned and fell. Neither did Seth, not to mention Cain and Abel, uh, on through Noah, David, everybody we think about from the Bible. What it took for God to have a people was the death of his only son. But God will stop at nothing to have his people. And as the book of Revelation reveals, he will have his people. That's right. He will. And that's, uh, that is something that we can take comfort in. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to tie this up here. Uh, the last section of the book is like this. Mm-hmm. Where it is, it is both complex, but it is very practical, mm-hmm. and so we're on the home stretch now. Uh, look forward to finishing it out. Yeah, I'm so glad C.S. Lewis uh, said no to all those haters who said don't put theology in your book. They're like, oh man, way to go, C.S. Way to go, Clive. <laughs> way to go, Clive. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been Empires of the Future, and we will see you in the future. <laughs> <laughs>